What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is legendary concert promoter Chuck Morris. This week, his title is Chairman Emeritus of AEG Presents in both Denver and the Pacific Northwest, and he's head of the new music business program at Colorado State University. Chuck, good to have you. Man, this is great, Bob. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, let's just start with general topics Live shows, when are they coming back? Wow. Um, hey, you know as well as I, we need a vaccine. You know, we, we figured out our beautiful new uh, mission ballroom, which seats wall-to-wall standing 3,950. If we're socially distant, we may be able to sell 700 tickets. And the band can't make a penny. We, we're not in business. It's going to need a vaccine. If I had a guess, and it's strictly a guess, my guess is a vaccine will go will start being given out. And this is such a guess. You never know. I think by next April to June of next year, we'll begin to have shows. That's my guess. Okay, just a couple of questions. If we don't have a vaccine, no shows? I don't see how big acts, even mid-sized acts, can play in our kind of halls. I mean, you know, we have the Bluebird 500, the Ogden 1700, the Gothic 1000, we have big shows at the stadiums at Pepsi. We have the, our mission ballroom is 3,900. We have the First Bank, which is 6,500. You can't put enough people in for the band to make a penny. I think the tiny acts will play the tiny rooms for 50 people and probably be happy. I mean, if I was a baby act and just wanted to play, it's in my advantage to do that. But the big acts, I don't see how they can do it. I just don't see it. I mean, do you? Uh, no, I don't either. But uh, going back before March, before the shutdown, how would you compare the business as opposed to the 70s when you really got ranking and going? Our business today, up till this tragedy, has been mind-blowing. 
when I first started, my first club was 1970, Tulagi's Nightclub in Boulder. Um, I never dreamed that I would outlive all my rich friends who were working for record companies and morning guys in radio and entertainment editors of newspapers. And we outlived them all. You know, you, it, the Internet, all the other stuff that's going on, uh, you can replace anything except live music. And I was always, you know, I owned clubs for the first eight years. And then I started working with Faye as his number two guy and built my own company with Greg Perloff, BGP, Chuck Morris, and went on, blah, blah, blah. The SFX, the Clear Channel, to Live Nation. And then I joined my old friend, Phil Anschutz. I never dreamed that live entertainment would get so big and, and a big chunk of the rest of the business would be replaced by other things and making it less make, making it less important. I mean, I was always uh, jealous of my friend. Not jealous. I never cared about money anyway. But, you know, my rich friends worked for record companies. They were morning guys. They were newspaper editors, uh, music editors. They were writing for Rolling Stone and making good money on articles. They were doing all this stuff while the live business, we, we did well, don't get me wrong, but I never dreamed it would be, do this well. I mean, our office, and God bless my great partners, one of them happens to like you, which I worry about, Don Strasberg <laughs> and, and Brent Fatrizi, who will be ta taking over my position as the number one person. I've been with them 27 years. Um, I never dreamed it would get this big. You know, it used to be in the old days, I think you'll agree with this, people would go on the road to sell albums because that's where they made all their money. Today, you make an album as a PR thing so you can sell more tickets on the road. That's where they make all their money. Okay. So I agree with you totally. In terms of being the promoter, how has it changed in terms of deals from then to today? The bands, uh, well, first of all, I hate old promoters that liked the old days and either leave the business or complain about it. To me, it's a much better business. I don't mind the fact that there's more lawyers and accountants and people that protect the bands, the customers, even the promoters, everybody. I'm not one of those old guys that said, oh, I wish there was the old way where we could, you know, write an, an offer on a piece of paper and bullshit our way with expenses. You know, every agency has their own marketing people, their own accountants, their own everything. Tour managers are as sharp as they can get. And I think it's a better business for that. And I've learned how to change. That's why I've survived this long up until now. And now I'm I'm doing something that I've wanted for most of my life, which is uh, as I as I ended my career, uh, uh, started a department at a major university in Colorado and teach music business, which has been my love my whole life. Well, we'll certainly get deeper into that. Uh, but going with the statement you just made, how have you changed over the years in terms of business? Um, I've learned how to deal with lawyers and I've learned how to deal with accountants and I've learned how to have people now, you know, make deals and go through them and number by number. I've learned that you have to be straight in today's world. I mean, in the old days, let's be real, in the 70s, even into the 80s, we were all partying. We were all having, it was a great business. I had more fun than you can believe. But um, I mean, I got sober in 1988. I, I've been sober ever since because my body was breaking down and I couldn't 
stay till four o'clock in the morning and get up and go to work. And it was breaking down. And I had to, I realized the business was getting so big and had to, you had to be straight to deal with what was going on, was how, how it was changing. And I think all for the better. I really, really do. Okay, so uh, let's talk about an act that can sell arenas or, or larger. Traditionally, they're taking about 90%. So uh, if you're lucky. If you're okay. So where does a promoter make their money today? Promoter makes his money if he owns a building. You make it on food and beverage and alcohol and some on ticketing. If you have your own ticketing company or you make a deal with a ticketing company on on um, corporate sponsorship. As far as the door is concerned, the bands make 95 some percent, uh, percent of, of the gross of the door. You have to make it on ancillary income or you're not in business anymore. In the old days, I remember the first deals I made. One of the first acts, big acts, one of the first acts that played for me was the Doobie Brothers in 1971 at my first club. 1970, actually. Listen to the music was just breaking, their first hit single. I gave them $2,500 versus 50% of the door for five nights. We didn't, show, <laughs> we didn't show any expenses because it didn't matter. They got half the door. So I could spend all I wanted or nothing. And we always sold great tickets in Boulder, Colorado. My clubs always did so well, so they didn't care. And so there was never any settlements. They made half the door. Yeah, they counted the tickets, took half the money and left. And everybody was happy. It was just a different ball game. The bands, the promoters made a chunk of the door in the old days. Today's days have changed. And I'll never forget, Irving was the first, and I love Irving, one of my oldest, dearest friends. I did this second Eagles date when they played for me and my club, Tulagis, in November of 1971, rehearsing. They played a week in Aspen and a week for me in Boulder to rehearse to make their first album. And, um, Irving had just joined Elliot Roberts and David Geffen. I don't even know if he was doing the day-to-day for the Eagles. And they called and they said they wanted two weeks to rehearse. So they were going to go in in January to make their first album. And their producer, a guy named Glenn Johns, was flying in from England and wanted to take notes. And it was it was the last week of November after Thanksgiving. College town, college kids, a 3-2 bar, so you could be 18. And I said, no one's going to come. There's finals, and then they leave. And on the, I think I was talking to El- May, rest in peace. I was Elliot Roberts or David Geffen. I can't remember. I said, nobody's going to be there. And so we don't care. We're going to work a week in Aspen, that little club up there, which is still around, different name, the Goldberg owns, and my club. And it was the four original guys. Um, and we did about 12 people a night, and they were amazing. <laughs> and I, wa- I, I watched history because I saw Glenn Johns taking notes, but they were playing all the songs from their first album. They had never done any live dates before that. that was, they, had, they were put together by those guys. Well, and, let's, uh, uh, let's just stop there. Uh, so if they played for five nights, business did not increase over those five nights? Uh, it was a blizzard most of the time, and finals were over. Nope. They didn't, <laughs> but they didn't care. They wanted to rehearse the songs and they were playing Peaceful, Easy Feeling and Take It Easy and all those great songs they recorded a month and a half later in, in London with Glenn Johns. Wow. So I, I watched history that week. Uh, okay, let's talk about dates that you buy where you're losing money. What happens then both in the past and in today? Um. <clears throat> 
most promoters today have given up asking for money back. In fact, I really never did. A, because I was always embarrassed to do it. Even though I was a club owner, I was self-made. I didn't, I wasn't bad. This was before I joined Feline and Barry. Um, but I always felt, you know, you win some, you lose some. And we got killed on some dates and there was not much you could do. I will tell you the greatest story ever, though. I had a great comic named Dick Gregory at Ebbets Field, my second club. I named it because I grew up in Brooklyn, 10 blocks from the baseball park of the Brooklyn Dodgers. I was a big Brooklyn Dodger fan at nine years old. And I had Dick Gregory as a stand-up. He had already started moving away from being a stand-up. It was probably 1970, 71, maybe two, at Ebbets Field, and drew about 80 people. And I gave him $2,500, which was a lot in those days. And this happened to be the only time in my career. He and he didn't have a road manager in those days. Artists usually toured on their own. And he walked in, the nicest guy, just and he was already writing books on, on losing weight and liquid diets and was moving away from being a stand-up. So he wasn't selling tickets much as a stand-up anymore. And he looked at me and said, you got killed tonight, didn't you? I said, yeah, I got killed. He said, I'm going to tell you something. You pay me whatever you think is fair. And I wrote out a check for half the money. Never happened since. Only time in my career that an artist ever did that. That was Dick Gregory. I'll never forget that as long as I live. It was the sweetest, kindest, wonderful thing. And I needed the money because we were getting murdered. And that never happened again. Okay. So when we, you know, what the, the, Conventional wisdom today is no one gives money back to Live Nation because it's a public company. Uh, were you the outlier or were really other, you know, the tradition was I give money back to the promoter to keep him in business so the next time around he has money to pay me. Was it that you were so good and your economics were good or was it were other people giving money back? What do you think? No, I shouldn't say not giving back. Traditionally, there have been some, and there still are some. If you get killed, there's some artists that are pretty, a few that are very nice about it. Um, but to be honest, most of the time, they blame the promoter or the club owner that we didn't know how to sell tickets. When it's sold out, it's because the act is hot. And when it, does, it doesn't sell tickets, it's because we do a lousy job. And that's not everybody. God bless them. There's some of the greatest artists in the world that I consider some of my best friends. You know, I managed the Dirt Band for years. They always gave money back if they if they heard a promoter. But of course, they wanted to come back. And some of them were, were country festivals that they wanted to come back and play too. I mean, there was some, some reason for it. But they were really nice guys who didn't like to see people get burned. So there are people like that. But it's not, not a general thing that happens. You know, a band comes out today with, you know, even mid-sized acts with, you know, four semis and a 14-man crew, and they have a lot of expenses. I sound like a band manager now, which I've been my whole career as well as promoter. But, you know, it's hard for them to give back some money. Okay, let's say you're the promoter and you lost money and the band wants to come back. What do you say? Um, have I asked them for money back when I got killed the first time? No, no, no. Let's just say you did the date. You lost a real sum of money as opposed to $10. Yeah. 
Suddenly, it's six months, a year later, they want to come back on the road. They ask you for an offer. What do you say? You say you give them a lowball offer. You give them what they want. You say, I'm not going to play you at all. Uh, all of the above, none of the above. I've lost money on bands knowing I would. When I heard a first album from an act that I thought was phenomenal, and I knew the act hadn't, the, the, the record hadn't really started taking off, I would lose money on a band a few bucks because I believed in the band. People forget what Bruce Springsteen, what was his third album, fourth album before he happened? Ario yeah, the Speed, third. Yeah, yeah. Ari, Ario Speedwagon had like three or four before, you know, uh, their big hit. A million acts were like that. And I would I would lose money a few bucks on bands if I believed there'd be a future. Okay, but in the old days, prior to the roll up of nineteen ninety six, the bands were loyal. They're not really loyal anymore, are they? Some are, some aren't. It's definitely there's lot le there's less loyalty these days than there used to be. Um, we have we have people that have played for us their whole careers. God bless them. And we have bands that do tours with other unnamed uh, major promoting companies that have that have given us an exception on their contracts. And we've done the dates in Denver, thanks to myself, thanks to Don and Brent, who are the greatest partners in the world, who have their own relationships, plus mine. They have great ones where a band sometimes will say, I'll do a tour for a Boco Bucks, but we, we've always worked for the gang in Denver, we want to play for them. And once in a while, a band will, you know, uh, or a promoter will allow that band to make an exception. Sometimes they won't, and they play for somebody else. It does happen. It, 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 it hurts, but it does happen. Okay, so why is Denver such a spectacular live music market? We have, that's a good question. There have been some great people, I guess I'm one of them, my two key guys have been one of them. We have the greatest, first of all, we have the greatest amphitheater in the world, Red Rocks, which has been around forever. We also have a great audience that we've all helped develop. We have some great institutions there. I'm not the only one that has been a pretty good promoter, bringing in great acts with great buildings. And we have E-Town, an unbelievable public PBS uh, you know about Nick and, and E-Town. They're on, what, 300 radio stations around the country from Boulder, Colorado, which has promoted some great music from Colorado. We have Telluride Bluegrass, one of the greatest festivals in the world. Colorado Festival, you know, thanks to those guys, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place. We've developed a great market for shows, for buildings, for special events, and we've had a lot of good people. I've been yeah, but by this, I'll talk to Don, and he'll tell me the kind of business he's doing with Axe that can't sell anywhere near that number in another market. I'll tell you a funny story. When I decided to go back and promote, when Barry Faye decided to retire, and I was just managing bands and working as a consultant at Fayline, and when Barry decided to retire, I was always the number two promoter for years behind Barry. I decided to come back, and I made a deal with my great friend Greg Perloff. And we started Chuck Morris, Bill Graham Presents, and built the Fillmore because they had the brand name. I always wanted to build a great rock club because I had built my own before that. And uh, uh, Greg and Sherry, who you know I'm sure very, very well, Greg would call me and say, there's a mistake here. I said, what are you talking about, Perloff? He said, you got 4,800 tickets for Michael Fronte? 
You're full of it. He does great in San Francisco and he, and, and may, maybe a few other places. And, and Michael, I love Michael, and he sells a lot of tickets now. But there were acts like that that Greg thought I was lying with my ticket counts. But we have an interesting market. First of all, we've had KBCO radio for 40 years that has played not as much alternative music as they do as they used to, but always took chances on records and bands. We just have a great, great market that we've all worked hard at and developed. You know, Austin gets a lot of press, and I love Austin. I managed a great band years ago called The Ugly Americans with Bob Schneider. Loved Austin, still love Austin music. They get a lot of press, but <coughs> let me tell you, the, the, the Colorado music scene is really amazing. I don't think we've gotten as much national and international press as we probably should have because we've, we've developed, we meaning all of us, I'm only one of them. And I've been blessed that I have two guys that are taking over that are probably better than me. You know, uh, it, we've just brought some great promoters in, great club owners, great buildings, great radio stations, great special events. It's just been a wonderful place to develop music, and I've been blessed that I was part of it right from the beginning. So let's assume, you know, if they're playing the Pepsi Center, which is a small arena, they're playing Red Rocks. That's small. The acts are dictating the terms. But if they're playing the Mission Ballroom or they're playing smaller, can the promoter make a greater percentage of the uh, revenue? No, that's a lie. It's not true. No. Well, ex- they, explain they, it to me. They get as, almost all, as much money as they can. That's the job of the agents. And they'll take almost everything from the door and hope you can make it on the other end. That's just the way our, our, our business has gotten. And that's, and that's not the worst thing in the world. We still do okay, okay? Okay. I put, I put five kids through college, so I did okay. Okay. Now we all know on the inside that Ticketmaster is a front for the acts. Really, the acts are taking all the ticket revenue. So the money, the profit for the promoter. Okay. Give me your take on it. Ticketmaster takes plenty of the money. Yeah. They have to make a profit. What I'm saying is, let me put it a different way. The fees were a way to keep a certain amount of money out of the gross that the acts wanted to commission, correct? Yes and no. Yes, it's true. But the only way promoters could survive was as things got moving along from the 70s to the 80s and into the 90s, the bands were taking more and more and more of the money. And promoters, if they wanted to survive, had to figure out other ways to make money. Some of it was ticketing. Some of it was sponsorship. Some of it some of it was um, advertising. Some in the in the in the arenas. Some it was all sorts of stuff. Answering income is the only way promoters have been able to survive, and that's where you make your money. In the old days, I made money at the door. We okay. used to make half the door. Okay, but let's let's talk about club dates. You know, when you have a hundred dollar plus ticket at a large venue, the uh, the fee is less of a percentage of the overall cost. But I get email all the time. People say, well, you know, the ticket was $25 and the fees were $20. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, I've never seen that high, higher amount. Well, and I certainly have, but maybe not in for your market. A 20, for a tw- not in our market. You're telling me a, 20, a $25 ticket gets a $20 fee? For yes, the, but just, let's just, not... Just, let, just for the ticketing? Now, there's also... Some buildings that are owned by somebody else will have a building fee to pay back to build a building. That might be a, uh, an added add-on. 
okay, well, ultimately in fees, let me add, put it a different way. How come we can't go into an overall one price? Because expenses have gone up for everybody and everybody is in some ways greedy to be able to survive, to make as much money as possible. And that's why they have managers and agents and lawyers and accountants. Okay, let's just let's just assume the fee is fifteen dollars. If you own the building and you are the promoter, what percentage of the fee will you get back? It all varies. It all varies on the city, on the deal you make with a ticketing company, on which ticketing company. Um, it all depends. And there are some promoters that don't don't char- don't take a lot of it. There's some promoters that keep there, and there's some bands that keep their ticketing down. You know, God bless Dave Matthews. He's up there, but he still keeps a reasonable ticket. And, um, you know, we've been working with him from the very, very, very beginning. And uh, speaking of the beginning, let's go back to you. You're from Brooklyn. What kind of circumstances did you grow up in? My father was a public school teacher. I grew up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, a rather lower middle class area. I was a, uh, a Brooklyn Dodger fan. Um Loved the Dodgers. Grew up about 14 blocks from Ebbets Field. My second club I named Ebbets Field, which, by the way, I couldn't do today. I'd be sued by the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it was Billboard Club of the Year. And I used the same logo in 1972. I would have been enjoined from doing that, but no one cared in those days. Okay, let's start. Okay, how many kids in the family? I have five kids. I was actually, believe it or not, a very good student. Wait, but where were, where were you in the hierarchy of the five kids? Uh, no, no, I have five kids. No, no. I, I just no, have no, 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 no. Then maybe I asked a question wrong. In the family that you grew up in, how many kids were there? Two, just my brother and I. He's a dentist. And you, who was the oldest? He was. Four years, four years older. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. 
you know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Usually the oldest, all the hopes and dreams are in the oldest, and they sort of coddle the younger. What was it like in your family? Well, I was a really excellent student. I graduated from Forest Hills High School when I was 16 because they had something you know, called the SP where you can skip the eighth grade and do seven, eight, and nine in two years. And I started kindergarten when I was four because I passed some IQ tests and started. So I graduated high school at 16, went to Queens College, Actually, Paul Simon and Artie Garfunkel went to Forrest's High School in Queens College with me, although they were four years ahead of me. Eddie Simon graduated with me. I, I was real good friends with in high school and college. But anyway, came out to Boulder, and I didn't even know what Colorado was because we didn't have any money, but they gave me a scholarship to go for a PhD in political science. I love government. That's probably why I've done 50 benefits for a whole bunch of politicians especially my boy John Hickenlooper will be arranging a new one for a Senate campaign. But I go back with Gary Hart and Pat Schroeder and all the the liberal Democratic politicians that I've done. I love politics. was on my way to a doctorate at 22 and a half, but I, I spent my youth buying albums and going to concerts. My father's a school teacher. During the summer, he would be a camp counselor at Lake Chautauqua, New York which is the greatest place. It's a summer resort and they have a amphitheater there and they have music and symphony and all sorts of stuff. I went there every summer with my dad as a, as, as a camp counselor. And I started, I saw the Kingston trio when I was 11 years old and I saw God. I went to see the, and I snuck in the front row, sat on the floor and I fell in love with folk music. Absolutely fell in love with folk music. I bought every album of all the old folkies in fact, wait, where is it? Can you see that? Yes, I can. You see what I can't read what it says. It says born to folk. <laughs> I finally, my kid who has tattoos convinced me. I said, I always wanted this, but I never had the nerve. I had to wait till my Jewish mother died. But I, and I finally got that. But I fell in love with folk music, saw the Kingston Trio, bought a tenor Martin four-string guitar like Nick Reynolds in the band, played in a couple of folk bands, was not very good. But I lived for music. I also, when we got, a, my father became an assistant principal. We made a few extra bucks. So we moved to the poorer part of Forest Hills. And I went to the old Forest Hills Westside Tennis Club, where they had shows even in those days, and saw Bob Dylan and a whole bunch of other acts, and just lived for music. Bought every album when it came out. Just, But I didn't know how to get in the music business. I didn't know anybody. I knew Eddie Simon and the Simon family, but that was it. And... Um, after two years of doing well in graduate school at a very young age. Okay, I so just, wait, wait, after those two years, what year are we in chronologically, 1968? No, it was 1968. Okay, so two years of graduate school. I was going to quit graduate school and try to make it in the entertainment business because that's what I really loved. And my parents almost, they disowned me 
They thought I was having a nervous breakdown. My father was a brilliant guy, a school teacher, you know, Phi Beta Kappa in, in Greek and Latin, but was a school teacher. And uh, they didn't understand. I, I quit graduate school. I was a great student. And I wanted to be in music, which my parents did not understand. And just, just before we go, you were studying what in, at uh, university? Poli-sci. Constant, I was okay. getting a doctorate in constitutional law. And I was a 20-year-old TA at CU. And okay, I was about 12 well, years old. Okay. And what was the dream once you did get the PhD? I didn't have a dream. I like politics, and I guess I didn't end up either being a lobbyist like my daughter has become or uh, teach, teach okay. poli-sci in college. Okay, so you say, I'm leaving, uh, leaving school. I want to be in the Dropped entertainment out. business. And what is the next the, move? The next move is I got friendly with a guy named Herbie Kavar. Herbie Kavar owned the most popular bar on the hill in Boulder called The Sink. The Sink was the place to get a beer and listen to a jukebox and have fun. It's still around. It's been around in Boulder for 40 years. Anyway, 50 years, maybe more. And one day I told him I had dropped out and I wanted to do something with people. I used to have a beer with him every night when I left Norland Library after I studied. And um, I told him I had quit and I wanted to do something with people, maybe music, although they didn't have live music at the time at the sink. And he said, you know, my manager of the sink just quit. People love you. You're really smart. Why don't you manage the sink, which was the number one three two bar in the state? It took a half hour to get in there on a Friday afternoon, and there was no cover charge, just to show an ID. That's how busy it was. And I decided to take to try it. In fact, I said I never took a business class. I didn't know anything about it. He said, no, you'd be great. I started managing the sink in 1968 and started booking local bands in the back room. Some of them became famous. One of them was this wonderful kid guitar player named Tommy Bolin, who was one of the greatest that ever lived. Ran away from Sioux City, Iowa, started playing little clubs in Boulder, became best friends with him. He played the upstairs of the sink for me. Another one with a bunch of dropouts from CU named Flash Cadillac and the Continental Kids, who they played in the back room for me for a keg of beer, second show they ever did. They ended up being a regular on Happy Days and with the movie American Graffiti. They're still touring, by the way, since then. And I started booking local bands. Some of them became well-known in the, in the upstairs of the sink. I also did something. I, I knew I was a good promoter when I did something really nuts. The sink jukebox was the only music at that point before I started booking, putting local bands in the back room for free. And um, it was a successful jukebox. And I came up with this crazy idea that I was going to make 45s out of album cuts in the, uh, that jukebox companies didn't give to the jukebox to the jukeboxes. It was always a top 40 hits. So I did a 45 of like the Long Ranger hit. I did stuff from, you know, movies that people love, but they never were singles. And it became the biggest jukebox in the history of the state because people would go in there to play those songs that they couldn't get in any other jukebox anywhere. And I did stuff like that. And I knew I had a natural inclination to promote music. And after about two and a half years, I convinced Herbie that we ought to take a bankrupt club called Tulagi's, which is up the street, right next to Don's Fox, by the way. It's still there, although it's now a lot of other stores. The sign's still up because it's historic. And right, um, Just stopping for one second. When you started to manage the sink, that is when you dropped out of school or were you still going to school? Then? Uh, no, I dropped out of school. Okay. 
So you 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 find you find two loggies. I, I convinced her because I still had no money. Because I, to be honest, I party too much. I love cars, women, and having fun. I did very well, but those were the seventies and sixties, late sixties, and Boulder, Colorado. For God's sakes, I mean, you know. Um, in fact, I'll tell you a quick story. Tommy Boland became one of my best friends. Became one of the greatest guitarists. Was in Deep Purple, James Gang. Um, Old and died too young. I had uh, what comedian did I had? Oh God, what's his name? He died a while ago. But I walked. I walked in, and Tommy wanted to meet him. And we walked into the dressing room. I was doing the show, and um, he looked at me and and said, "I got a feeling. I really want to get some pot." And I got the feeling that the guy with hair down his back, with pink hair in Boulder, Colorado, knows how me to get score some pot, which he was right. Of course, Tommy knew how to get pot. But um, it was Bob, um, what's his name? Great comedian. But it was a funny line. That's another story. So so I I convinced Herbie to put the money up. I owned a small piece. I did the whole thing, booked it. Do you, do you, do you remember how much money he had to put up? Oh, uh, it wasn't that much. It was a rental deal. We never owned the building. We remodeled it. We opened up with the hottest band ever in Colorado that never made it nationally, Tommy Boland's band, Zephyr. And in a period of three years in blues, I had John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, Lightning Hopkins, Mance Lipscomb, Big Mama Thornton, uh, Johnny Otis, Sugar Otis, everybody. Um, in, in folk, I had the Dirt Band, who later moved there, Leo Kaki, who I managed for years, um, Tom Rush, Tim Harden, Tim, Tom, Tom Paxton, uh, everybody. In rock, I had Bonnie Raitt's first tour. I had the first tour of uh, ZZ Top, which was amazing. I mean, all, all those bands played for me. It became one of the most successful clubs in America. Okay, what was the capacity of Tulagi's? 500. 500. And if you, once you were going, if you didn't have the deep pocket of the guy who owned the sink, could you have made it? I couldn't have opened the club. And I couldn't have played Once it was open, was it always in the black or was it up and Always down? in the black. Did very well, but I only had a small piece and I did everything. He never came in. I mean, I, he gave me my break. I'll never say a bad thing. He's still alive in his 90s and gave me the biggest break of my career to manage the sink and then putting up the money for a club that became my really entree into making it as a, as a promoter. But um, he was wonderful. But I, but I felt like um, I wanted to have more say and I wanted to do bigger concerts. And every time I'd book a band, I booked the first tour of Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks, who were huge in Boulder. I mean, really obscure bands that were doing just great there. Uh, Cold Blood, remember them? Yeah, Lydia of course, Lydia, Lydia Pence. Oh, yeah, she was killer there. I had all those bands. Anyway, um, when the bands got bigger, they played for Faye because he was the big promoter, Faye Line. And I wanted to do bigger shows. J.J. Kale was huge in Boulder. I was the first guy to bring him in. And not, you ever met him or seen him play? He's the greatest. He was right. the greatest. Anyway, but when they when they got bigger, they played for Faye because he was the big promoter. And I said, if I wanted to get big, I might have to go into business with him. I never met him. We fought over the phone, and he always won. I tried to do a bigger concerts, and he got them. And I realized then, at least in those days, that's the way the business was, at least for me. There are some people that have stayed independent. God bless them. Our boys in Washington, D.C. have been like that, and I have a total respect for them. But for me, if I wanted to be bigger, I'd have to probably have to get into business with Barry, who I never met. And he was 305 pounds, 
and we screamed on the phone for about two years, and he always won. So one day I decided I was going to take a, take a chance, and I Wait, called just, him. Just to be clear, you're still running two loggies? As okay. a minor partner doing all the work. Herbie owned 90% of it. Okay, so two and a half years later. I called Barry. I, I thought he would hang up on me because we fought on the phone. He would answer the phone, what the fuck do you want? That's how Barry said hello. If you knew anything about it. I love Barry, but he was a lot different than most people I've ever known in my life. I loved him in a lot of ways. Best man at two of my weddings. Um, but we were different in a lot of ways. So I called him and he said, what the fuck do you want? I said, you know, I'm this young kid that built this big club. I'm finding acts. Linda Ronstadt did a first tour there. After she left the Stone Ponies. I had all these bands. I said, and then when they get big, they play for you at Feyline. I want to maybe build a club with you as a partner, equal partner in Denver. There was no rock club then. And then I want to go on and do bigger shows with you. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow night? I still remember the show. I had Stone Ground. Remember that band? Of course, on Warner Brothers from San Francisco. Uh, uh, who was the lead singer? Uh, the same guy from the Bo Brummels. Yes! Uh, who? Like, who? 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 Oh, who? God, if you hadn't asked me, not Sal Valentino. Yes, yes, yes! yes, yes. Oh, I love you. You're great. <laughs> okay. This is the great. And the opening act was Mance Lipscomb. The old Delta Blues musician who was about 85 years old. I used, in those days, you could put anybody on, band, on on shows. So I put together the stupidest shows. And in Boulder, it always worked. I once did a show with, um, who was the hippie band from, from, uh, from San Francisco? One of the first ones. And I put my dear friend Mimi Farina to open. She was opening for the Sons of Champlin. Bill Champlin's first Yeah, of band. course, yeah. Yeah. There was this R&B hippie band. And I loved Mimi. She had played with Joan Baez's kid sister, who right. I loved, loved to death. I put her on there. It would work nowhere else in the world except Boulder, Colorado. And people loved it. Anyway, you could put any acts you want in those days. You didn't have agents and managers saying, we're putting one of the bands that we work with on the shows. And then, anyway, so Barry said, I'll come up and talk to you. And I had Stone Ground and Man Slips come in. He walked in my office and said, you're the best club kid I've ever seen. Go find a club. I'll put up all the money. We'll be 50-50 partners. And if it works out well, we'll start doing concerts together. And that's all I wanted to hear. I left Tulagi's about six, four weeks later. Started looking for clubs. Found an old MOR room called Marvelous Marvs. Whoa, 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 whoa. What did the owner of the sink say when you said you were moving on? He was devastated. But we had our differences. He was, God bless Herbie, I love him. He gave me such a break, but he still didn't understand the culture of our business. He'd freak out if he walked in and a musician was smoking pot in the dressing room. Freak out, right in front of me. I'll never forget the biggest thing. I became best friends with the Dirt Band who moved to Colorado. I later managed them. They're still my best friends for 25 years. And they were rehearsing at Tulagi's before they started a, a tour. Because I lived in Colorado, I lived in Denver, Boulder, and in Aspen. And they rehearsed for four days during the day. And um, Herbie came in. I was, this is the first band I became best friends with. And he came in, and we had pillows on the floor. People would sit on pillows, hundreds of people, and then seats around the outside. And he started screaming at me because the pillows were dirty. And we had a show that night. And I said to myself, I can't do this anymore. And that's when I called Faye. Okay, so you start looking for a club. What do you find? I find a place called Marvelous Marv's that was an M.O.R. room that would have like pop acts, M.O.R. acts, Las Vegas acts. 
and they weren't doing well. And I convinced Faye to write out the whole check. We became 50-50 partners. I named it Ebbets Field, the place that I lived for. Uh, okay, wait, wait. You, you, own, you rented or you actually owned the building? No, uh, we rented the building. We rented the room. We owned you, the club. Do you remember how much Faye had to put in to get started? It was it was a dumpy place. I would say, I mean, in those days it was a lot of money, probably 50000 That was a lot of money. Okay. So how long does it take you after you find it to actually open? Um, it was only about six weeks of construction. It was really just cleaning it up. We had bleachers. People sat in bleachers that had carpeting on it. And it became a very, very, it was, as I said, it was Billboard Club of the Year for two years. Yeah, I, I happen to write, have a list of the 450 acts that played there. I'll read a well, few. Well, I'm not going to let you read all 450. Read you, but okay, but wait, just first question for you, say some of the acts. What was the capacity uh, at Ebbets Field? 270. Okay, so give me some of the acts. Okay, I'll just give you some of the big ones. Tommy Boland, George Benson, Roy Buchanan, J.J. Kale, Canned Heat, Cheech and Chong, I'm just, um, Dr. Hook, Ry Cooter, Climax Blues Band, John Fahey, Leo Kaki, Dan Fogelberg, Peter Frampton, Richard Green, David Grisman, Dick Gregory. That was a comic I was telling you about. Um, Johnny okay, Hooker. Chuck, we get the idea. So what happens? You, you, you open Ebbets Field. How long does that run? And when do you get into concerts? Four years. Four years. And Feyline was exploding. Barry started doing national tours, did the Stones in about eight markets, did the Who in about eight markets. He knew I was a great promoter, a good promoter. I was a great promoter. Um, and said, why don't you, we're never going to make any money in this club. You've developed a lot of great relationships. So why don't you sell the club and become my number one guy at Feyline? So, uh, and start doing bigger shows. And so I sold the club at, uh, four years after we opened and became the senior vice president of Feyline for 10 years and booked many, many of the shows. And we did shows all over the country. We did Willie and Whalen and the Outlaws across America. That's how I became best friends with Willie and Mark Rothbaum, who's still his manager, um, and um, did that. I had some differences with Barry in terms of business practices, and he had some problems that are well-known locally with gambling. And I decided, uh, I started managing the Dirt Band and Leo Kotke, and I put together a band by myself that became a band called Highway 101, the was Country Group of the Year. And I managed Susie Boggess, and I, and I found these young kids from Columbine High School named Big Head Todd and the Monsters. So my management company, while I was running Faye, or number two at Faye, was doing well. I was a little burnt out on, on promoting, but more burnt out on my relationship with Barry. I loved him, but we had our differences. And so I left and just managed bands. Barry was bailed out. He was going into bankruptcy for personal reasons um, by Michael Cole. Michael Cole flew me up to Toronto. He had CPI then and said, you're the only body that fake it will ever listen to. I want to keep you on as a consultant. You can manage all anybody you want, but stay on part time. So I, saw, I stayed on when Cole bar bailed Barry out and owned most of Feyline. He got tired of Barry and got bought out by a guy named Jay Marciano, who was running House of Blues. Jay did the same thing and said, you're the only buddy Faye will ever listen to. Stay around as a consultant. So I did. And then when Faye announced he was retiring, I decided I'd go on my own as a promoter. 
And that's when I called my dear friend Greg Perloff and said, why don't we start a Chuck Morris Bill Graham Presents in Denver? So what, what, what year are we, late 90s? Uh, it was 1997, 1996-97. And I said, I got an old building called Mammoth Event Center that is so made to be a Fillmore. You guys own the brand. I want to build a Fillmore here. And I'll never forget, Greg and Sherry said, you're crazy. Bill never wanted to be like a house of blues and have Fillmore's all over the country. Guess who bought the companies and now have Fillmore's all over the country. But anyway, they came into town. They saw this old 1911 club that needed a lot of work. And they said, Bill would call this a Fillmore. And that was our first move. We opened the Fillmore in Denver and we really took over. While I was doing that, Greg said, I got something I got to tell you. I said, what's that? I said, I've been talking to this guy, Bob Sillerman, who's probably going to buy our company. And he's buying a whole bunch of our promoting companies, of other promoters. You just started a company in Colorado. You will get a chunk to give up your part in Colorado. I said, well, what the heck does that mean for me? He said, okay, here's the deal. You're going to get a nice check, nothing like we did when we sold BGP, but a nice check for being in business for four months. You'll get more money to invest in other things. And we're all staying. I said, well, that is not a hard decision to be made. <laughs> so I stayed. We sold my part. Everybody sold it to Bob. And, of course, he sold it to Clear Channel. I kept running it. Hired Don and Brent as my first moves years ago. I hired Don, who was running the Fox. I hired him one day a week because I saw him as being me 25 years later. I said, this kid's a genius. So I hired him one day a, one day a week to help, help in our new company, which became SFX, which became whatever, first PGP, Chuck Morris, and um, hired another guy from Feyline who couldn't handle the old Feyline and quit, named Brent Fadrizi. Hired them both. Hired Don one day a week. Then I said, work two days a week. You're booking great, great shows. You know that new stuff more than I do. And then he went to three days. And then I, I took him out and said, Don, Eight years, it was the first eight years of my career, I ran clubs. It almost killed me. Enough's enough. You can still own the club. Come work and do bigger shows. You'll have a bigger career. And I convinced him, and then he worked full-time. When I started AEG, I met him and Brent's partners, equal partners with me. And they've been with me forever since then. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. So, ultimately, you sell to Live Nation, but then you and Don and Brent leave Live Nation, as does Perloff. What happens there? Well, um, Greg sold it to Live to Actually, the SFX was sold it to Clear Channel, was spun off to Live Nation. Greg left the same time as I did. He was getting tired of it and started another planet. Same time. And... I was getting tired of the politics of a publicly traded company, and I got approached by my dear friend Phil Anschutz, who I've known forever as a friend, doing charity work with him. I just loved the guy. Went to Russia with him with a dirt band because he had. That's a, lo- a quick story. He's got the largest Western art collection in the world, called the Anschutz Collection. Grew up in Russell, Kansas. Spent the rest of his life in Colorado. Made a lot of money. Built the greatest. Western Art Collection, which sometimes he tours around the world, nonprofit. He called me one day. He loved the Dirt Band and went to a bunch of shows. By the way, in 14 years, he's been to five of our shows, five of our shows at AEG, and has been to our AEG office once in 14 years. He's the greatest. If you do well and he, and he loves you, he lets you do, your, do what you want. He's the greatest. But anyway, he loved the Dirt Band and went to Dirt Band shows. And one day in 19, right before the Russian Revolution, in 1990, what year was it? When it was 88, calls me, says, I, I want to talk to you. Come over to the office. We were already great. AG wasn't even open yet. He said, you know about my Western art collection, the Anschutz collection. I said, yeah, Phil, don't you remember? You, you gave me a tour of it while I was sitting here in Denver. He said, oh, yeah, I forgot. He said, we're opening up the Trakia Museum in Moscow for six months. I've never done this before. I want to fly my favorite American country band to do 30 minutes acoustic in Moscow to open the exhibit. We'll have press there, Soviet Union officials. It was right before the Russian Revolution. And, uh, you know, other people. I'll get, what do they make? And I said, I'll give them a fee. I'm there for nine nights doing other business, oil business. You know, he has a million companies. And I'll put you and the girlfriends and wives and crew and band. I'll, 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 every, the other eight nights, take everybody out for dinner. And have a, have a lot of fun. I'm doing business every day, other business. So we played 30 minutes to open the exhibit. And only Phil Anschutz. I called him back in a day and said, Phil, we're going to do it. Don't worry. But the band would love to play in front of some younger kids. This is the art community. It was Soviet Union officials. It was um, He actually invited the whole U.S. Embassy and their families. And art people. 
he said, Chuck, the whole country's falling apart. That's right. It was 15 months before the Soviet Union fell. So you can imagine what Moscow was like. It was at this beautiful um, art museum where, where his exhibit stayed for six months. He said, two days later, he calls me back. He said, okay, the first night you're going to do open my exhibit. The second night I arranged a private show at a 5,000-seat, most gorgeous opera house you've ever seen. We're inviting Soviet Union officials, their families, the U.S. Embassy and their families, and we're giving away 2,500 tickets to Russian students. And the third night I arranged, and how Phil ever did this today, I've never asked him, but he did it in three days. He said, and this is Phil talking to me, right? We were already good friends. AG wasn't even open yet. He said, don't be mad at me, Chuck, but I said yes without asking you, and I'm not sure if you and the band are going to want to do it, but I do a lot of business in the Soviet Union, and I find that if the Soviet if Soviets make you an offer, you have to say yes or no. If I would have said I got to talk to a band or prove it, it goes away. So I said yes. Don't be mad at me. And I said, Phil, we're going to have the greatest time in our lives. We don't care. We'll do anything. He said, okay. I arranged a free concert in Gorky Park. We played wow. in front of about fifteen thousand people. How Phil to this day did that? I still I still don't even know. I still don't even ask. We get around about it. And that's why I became best friends with Phil. Okay. So how do you ultimately decide you want to start this uh, music business program at Colorado State? For my whole life, A, I was a TA at 20 years old at CU. I, I'm a son of a school teacher. I always loved teaching. I've taught at about 20 different colleges on one-offs just talking about music business. And I never had one plan in my 48-year music career the one plan I had was I wanted to start a music business department at a Colorado University. One plan, only plan. And I negotiated with not about money, but what school would would follow a program I wanted to build. And I made a deal with CSU where there are th it's not a small town anymore, Fort Collins. There's 32,000 kids that go to that school. And it's a big city now. And um, we're starting in three weeks, introduction to music business. And in three years, it'll be a minor. And in five years, it'll be a major hired my first teacher under me, and I'm going to have a whole department that I'm building, which has been the dream of my life to do that. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to have guests every week of all my friends in the business, and I'm inviting you by Skype to be a guest too. Okay. And who are your first couple of guests you've already booked? The first week, because it's the first week, I invited a guy named Jay Marciano who graduated from CSU, who's from Colorado. Had to be Jay. He's the head of our whole company, and he's perfect. And um, I invited Big Head Todd, who I managed from here locally, still a big star here. And so they're going to talk on the first week. But I have a, a stream of people that are getting ready to say yes, executives, musicians, all sorts of people. Okay. Are you the only teacher at this point? I'm not teaching at all. I'm, I'm going to chairman of the department. I'll guest lecture. I'll be there when the, when the special guests come once a week. But I'm not teaching day to day. I'm not doing exams. I hired my first teacher. Who had who, how did you find a teacher and who is he or she? Bart, Bart Dahl worked at Madison House for String Cheese, worked for Chris Tetzelli in his company, and then taught at Metro State for five years music business. I wanted somebody from both sides of it. Okay, what's going to make your music business program different from all the other music business programs that have sprouted in the last few decades? Yeah, there's about 40 of them, of which about 10 are real good. And I've studied them all. I've, I've flown to a lot of them. First of all, I'm going to have the best guests you've ever seen in your life because I have a lot of friends. Secondly, 
I have a PhD in, in music business. It's just not on the wall. And I'm gonna I'm I believe I'm gonna I'm gonna build a great, great department. And uh, the the first the first class sold out in five minutes. Fifty kids. Okay. We know all you were around when the business was still being built. Certainly in this century, this century, it's about consolidation. Uh, but we know all these characters. We can list them one after one uh, another. And you've mentioned a lot of them here. They were unique characters who probably would have been successful in some other field if they weren't in music business. Can yeah. you can you teach that to learn how to make it in the music business? Yes. I mean, it's one thing to teach someone how to be a road manager or to be a tour accountant, but the managers and the promoters, the people who built this business, they broke the mold after they made them. Well, you're absolutely right. I never took a music business. There weren't any music business classes in those days. Of course not. I do think if you love the business and will do anything to, to get into it, you can learn some things that'll make you a little bit more successful a little quicker. And that's all I can expect to do. I'm not going to train somebody that doesn't have it in their bones to want to do it, but I think I can make it a little bit easier for them. Okay. So what'd you learn being a manager? We work for the bands. You could tell them all you want. You can fight them. You could tell them, but, but the bottom line is the bands. And it took me a while to learn that that you can do so much. You can go to a certain point, but if the band won't do it, you got to live with that or else you get fired. I mean, it's as simple as that. How do you make the band more successful than they are when you first get involved? Well, I, I built a band by audition called that became a band called Highway 101 that was country group of the year. I, I, I auditioned people in Denver, 1986, and that was like my creation. As far as Big Ed Todd, they were already selling out um, thousand seaters in Minneapolis and Chicago and San Francisco and Boulder and Denver and doing 300 to 500 in other markets, all managing themselves for about three years. Went to Columbine High School. All were born in Colorado. Um, I actually chased them for about a year and a half to manage them because they wanted to manage themselves. But I convinced them that if they really wanted to get bigger, um, they really probably had to do uh, go to a, 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 a label, a big label. They made their own records, their own label. And they did pretty well. They sold ten to 20,000 on two independent records, which was a lot. And um, and I made a deal with my great friend Irving at Giant Records. And we did an album called Sister Sweetly, got a great producer, and sold a million and a half records. And they went from here to here. Yeah, bro Brokenhearted Stranger. How long broken did- Brokenhearted Savior. Savior, excuse me. How much longer did you continue to work with Big Head Todd after that initial about, LP? About, about 15 years, 13 years. Okay. Something like that. Okay, how did you get involved with the Dirt Band? Uh, they were the third act that played for me. They moved to Colorado. They came, became my closest friends. You know, we're all at each other's weddings. And um, their only other manager before me was a guy named Bill McEwen. Bill McEwen it was John McEwen from the Dirt Band's brother. John McEwen had signed a young comedian named Steve Martin. Steve Martin was the opening act for the Dirt Band for almost three years on the bus. No one ever heard of him. He was brilliant. In fact, when they played for me the first time, they got off the bus at Tulagi's and said, we got this comic, pay him 50 bucks. He's on the whole tour. I said, great. And he was hysterical. 
Bill, uh, Steve was starting to explode. Bill was getting ready to do a movie called The Jerk. Uh, Steve was becoming a superstar. He was living in Aspen. He started a film company. He also signed another. He was brilliant with comics, Bill was. Signed a young comic named Pee Wee Herman and produced Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And called me one day and said, would you come out? And they all lived in Aspen. His company, film company was Aspen Films. And still managing the Dirt Band, his brother's band, or one of the members. And said, I want to talk to you. And I went up there and he said, I'm just too busy with Steve Martin. He's exploding. And I have this other comic, Pee Wee P.B. Herman, I think he's going to be maybe as big. And I'm I'm finishing up scores for two movies. And I just don't have enough time for my brother's band. Would you take over? And I love the guys. I had to think about it because I had never managed before. And I said, Bill, I never managed before. I'm a promoter. I'm a club owner. Are you crazy? He said, Chuck, the band loves you. You know more about that music than I do. And it's just the other side of the coin. I'll never forget when he said that. And he was right. And I took over. They were sort of on the way down. They had hits in the 70s, but it was the early 80s and it was Donna Summertime. They weren't playing bands with banjos and violins anymore. They had Bojangles and Make a Little Magic and American Dream in the 70s, but they stopped getting radio and they really were really on the down. And I said, let's go make a country deal because country radio should play you. And, that, and I said, I'd only manage you if you'd let me do that. I made a deal with Warner's Nashville. Didn't change their music. Just uh, made some great records with Paul Worley and um, had 10 top 10 country records. I convinced them to do Circle Beyond Broken Volume 2. That became Album of the Year and had a huge comeback with them for 15 years, 20 years. And then, you know, managers either get fired or get bored or get tired and they leave. This is a certain amount of years. You know, I, my joke was I once signed a band and they were too young to know what I was talking about. But I took them out to congratulate them that they signed with me as their manager. And I said, this is a party for two things. They said, what's that? I said, for signing and for breaking up. Because we are going to break up. It's just a matter of time. Okay. So since you've played both sides of the fence, what can you tell people as a promoter and a manager? What can you tell people who have only played on one side? Well, I always tell my bands that I manage that unless their live dates come first before management stuff, you should get fired. You have to fight for the bands for how much they make, for where they play, for who they play for. And if you don't do that, you're not being a good manager. You're not, you should get fired. So I've always had two hats sometimes on certain acts, not a lot of them, but I've always, you got to be a promoter when you're a promoter first for the band. And you got to be a manager when you're a manager first. You don't do that. Okay. We've mentioned a number of times the beginning of your career, when bands don't sell out, being a good promoter, what is the essence of being a good promoter? Selling tickets. It's okay. So how do you sell tickets for an act that doesn't sell out instantly? Okay. Let me tell you what I did. How it was different in 1972 than it is now. I would, I would, I heard about this great guitar player named Leo Kotke, who had never played Boulder or Denver. I had a band that was playing for me, and they said that he had opened for them, uh, or they had opened for him in Omaha, Nebraska, and he was brilliant. <clears throat> I went to a record store, bought his record, flipped out. This is 1971. It was like his third album, maybe second took it down to the radio station 
which was KRNW, which became KBCO, which has been the number one rock station in this town forever, played it for them. They loved it. And they started playing the crap out of it. There was no playlist then. There was no testing records then. If they liked the band, or I maybe partied a little with the DJs, they got to play them. And I would sell out for the first time. I'll tell you a funny story. First time I had uh, J.J. Kale, who I loved him. John Kale was the greatest. By the way, his real name was John, but he couldn't be called John Kale because John, there was another John Kale. And because of the union, you can't have the same name from Velvet Underground. So he's, his, Denny Cordell from Shelter Records changed his name to J.J., nicest, sweetest hillbilly from Tulsa. All he did was want to fish and write songs. Really didn't like playing. He played once a year to pay his income taxes because he wrote a lot of hits for Eric Clapton, After Midnight, all these different songs. He came He came into town, walked in the door for a sound check. I was standing outside and said, hey, I'm Chuck Morris. I'm, I own this Pilates. And there's a line around the block. And he looked at me very seriously and said, who am I opening for? I mean, Kale never thought about money or who he's playing with or anything. He was just a brilliant songwriter. And just, he was J.J. Kale. That, that's how we sold tickets. We got him on the radio. Needless to say, that same paradigm doesn't exist today. Radio stations have tight playlists. Uh, younger generation listens to terrestrial radio less. How do you promote a band today? Get press for them. Uh, word of mouth. Um, Get the record stores to tell them that if they move the record up to a better position, it's selling like crazy in Colorado Springs. They ought to think about it. Little things. There's still ways. Not like it used to be, though. It's much, it's, those tricks are not that effective anymore. It's a different business. Are, are there any new tricks that are effective? Uh, well, the same trick as always. Bring a band in as an opening act who's great. And let them develop their own fans right here as an opening act. Put them on a big show. How many times have you been married, Chuck? Uh, three. But my wife now is 30 years. Plus. And how old were you when we were married the first time? Jeez, you're asking personal questions here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get down to the nitty gritty. Pardon the pun. Yes. Uh, it was my high school and college girlfriend. Okay, because you you were so far ahead of the game, you were young, so that might have made it difficult uh, on a relationship level. Well, it was a very bad marriage, and it lasted. It was very short. I was still a graduate student. She came out to Colorado, had graduated also at a young age, and was a school teacher. And we broke up after a year. And then, what, what was the second wife? Yes, uh, that lasted ten years. I have two beautiful children, and my third wife, who's great. We have three three kids. So it's unusual. I guess the question I'm asking, this is a business that's 24-7. Has it affected your relationships? Um, you know, I have a wife that loves what I do, believe it or not, and loves me watching me work and loves music. I had another wife that didn't like it, and I spent too much time. You got to find the right girl for that. Got to get lucky. And will your wife come to your gigs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so tell us about uh, the development of Red Rocks into the monolith it ultimately be, has become. Well, you know, it started, um, in fact, here's a little trivia question. The Beatles played Red Rocks, and there were very few rock shows in the 60s at Red Rocks. In fact, um, very few. It was the only Beatles show ever in America that didn't sell out. They did 66, I didn't promote it, 
this is before I was in the business. Uh, it only did 6,600 people because people weren't used to going there. They had church services there. They had lectures there. They had different stuff, but very little music. In fact, when Faye and I started to, started doing a lot of shows at Red Rocks, the city tried to stop having music, and we had to go to court to convince them that we ought to do more shows. And, and the funny part is they stopped us from doing a band called America, which is <laughs> as soft as it could be. And we went, we had, I had some of my friend testify that it, it was a great thing for the community and that America, for God's sakes, you don't riot to America. I mean, but um, we won and now our company does over 125 shows a year at Red Rocks up till latest tragedy where we're doing none. Okay, so Red Rocks is an open building. How do you compete with other promoters in Red Rocks? You get the bands, relationship with bands or the agent or the manager. Um, we, we do the majority of the shows. My old company, Live Nation, when I ran that, we did the majority, but I took my key guys, Don and Brent, and most of the company with us, and we do a lot more than they do. It's still relationships. You say there aren't, but it's still relationships. You may not have the long relationships like from beginning to end of their careers, but it's still relationships. Okay, and a couple of memorable shows at Red Rocks. What can you tell us? Well, I did with Faye the U2 the famous U2 show that was a video. And uh, the great story was it was snowing that day. And Barry and I had booked the Us Festival the weekend before. Uh, we did the second year of the Us Festival for Steve Wozniak. Right. We were flying back from Santa Barbara from the show. And we were flying, and U2 was that night, flying over Red Rocks, landing in Denver, and it was snowing. And Faye was freaking out. And, you know, the band put up Paul McGinnis, who I love to death, their manager for years, who retired a while ago. He put a second on his house to put up money. I put up money. He borrowed from Faye, from myself, from friends to put up money to make that video, which broke the band. Of course. There's no question. So we got off the, fl the plane and Barry's freaking out saying, we got to move it inside. In those days, you could move. The equipment wasn't like it is today. You could move a show. If it was by noon, you could move it indoors to the old Denver Coliseum. And he was afraid we wouldn't have a show. And I said, Barry, there's no way. They put up their life savings for this. He's like, I'm going to get him on the phone. He went to a pay phone at DIA, actually it was Stapleton then, and called Paul McGinnis backstage who was setting up and said, you got to move the show. It's snowing. We're not going to have it. It'll never make it. And McGinnis said, we put our heart and soul into this. We don't care. And let me get Bono on the phone. We had, we had done his first date in Denver at the Rainbow Music Hall. I became really good friends with the band. In fact, I took him out for dinner on a vacation in Dublin one year. And Bono said, Barry, we put our life savings into this. I don't care if it snows all over us. We're going to play. And it turned out that cold weather and that air coming out of his mouth and, 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 and the freezing made that video. Right, the fog, show. exactly, when he's marching around with the flag. Okay, since you're a fountain of tales, any other tales you want to put in here before we wrap up? Oh, God, there were so many great shows. It's really hard to say one from the other, but I would say the first show we did with Willie and Whalen when we took over their tour, because their previous promoter had gone out of business, and we started doing Willie Whalen and the Outlaws for a couple of years all over the country. And it was the first time... I had done Willie at my club and got to know Willie. He had moved to Colorado, actually, for a while. Uh, but it was the first time Feyline had ever done Willie. 
and uh, in a bit at Red Rocks, and that was magical. He's still magical. He's an amazing guy. Now, what we know, there's been a music business forever, but the confluence of the Boomers and the Beatles blew it up. Okay, both the record business, which you referenced earlier, and certainly the live business. What do we know? The boomer acts, the classic rock acts, are dying or will literally be off the stage within 10 years. Does it matter that they're gone? Or is the business so big that as long as you're somebody to put on stage, it will all be healthy? Well, I want to disagree on one thing. I remember there was a famous old quote from Mick Jagger saying he wouldn't be singing when he was 30. He's now what on this tour where that weird AEG is doing it's worldwide? 70, 73, I think. Okay. So I'm not so sure that in five or 10 years, some of them might still be playing. But you're right. They're going to die away or retire. I don't know about retiring, but hey, Willie is in his late 80s. He still plays. I mean. Okay. But when, when those acts expire, whether it be five years or 20, okay, when they can no longer play live or no longer here, Will that affect the live business? I think not that much. I think the live business has become such a part of our of our life, of our economy, of our soul in America that I think, you know, the young bands from the 80s and 90s are going to be around. And there have been some pretty good ones, you know, the YouTube era. They're still relatively young. So I, I think it'll hurt a little bit. But um, I think music is going to stay around for a long time, especially in Colorado, where it is such a part of our psychic. Well, this has been wonderful, Chuck. Thanks for your history, your stories, and your insight. And I wish you luck and continued success with your Colorado State University venture in the music business. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, Don and Brent are going to make it even bigger as they take over right now. I'm totally convinced of that. Those boys are the greatest. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsitz. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. 
I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.